Welcome to Street Smart Success, where real estate entrepreneurs share their backgrounds, experience, and lessons learned. This is Roger Becker, your host. Learn with me as I drill down with guests about their paths to success and what they're doing now. So today we have with us a highly accomplished, extremely bright uh, gentleman who is uh, circling about. I shouldn't say circling about. That doesn't sound right. This guy is an expert in multifamily, incredibly successful, very, very bright, all hands on board superstar. He is the founder and principal of Vantage Point Acquisitions. He is none other than Andrew Cushman. Andrew, welcome to Street Smart Success. Oh, thanks, Roger. Good to be here. Yep. Andrew, tell me, uh, we're going to, we're going to talk about what you've done in multifamily. I can assure you of that. But before we do that, tell me the Andrew Cushman pre real estate story. Yeah, I used to be a chemical engineer. Uh, that wasn't because I loved chemical engineering. That's because when I was in high school, uh, I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur and have my own company and do my own thing, but I had no idea what that looked like or how to do that in reality. They don't teach you that in school. Um, so I, I knew I liked problem solving and chemistry. So I figured, hey, chemical engineering uh, will at least be tolerable and I'll always have a good, uh, good job available to me if I do that. So I went and got a chemical engineering degree, worked as an engineer for seven and a half years for a large food company. I got married during that time. My wife uh, also had the same uh, mindset. And so we tried a variety of different little businesses, all of which made a small amount of money. But we each one we realized uh, was going to be kind of difficult to scale. and was really just another version of a job. And then uh, 2006, we discovered uh, house flipping uh, here in Southern California. And we learned about that, did our first one in 2007 and made as much as I made all year at my job. So I said, all right, there's no better time than that. So I uh, walked in and um, resigned from my, my chemical engineering job right as the Great Recession started. Uh, and uh, we flipped full time for 2007, 8, 9, 10, and 11. Uh, it was a great business. Uh, especially the 2007, 8, and 9, because we had no competition. Everyone was scared. So uh, we were just out there making a great business out of it. But uh, we also figured out that, okay, that also is another, uh, can become quite an intensive job. And you're only as good as your last deal. You buy a house, you fix it up, you sell it, you make a profit, but then there's nothing left. You, ha you have to go find something else. And so we said, all right, what is what is something that will create more lasting income, more lasting wealth, and is much easier to scale? And, you know, in 2011, we said, well, we just came out of a huge recession, which means we're probably going to enter a long expansion. Uh, half the country got foreclosed on and can't buy a house for the next seven years. The other half of the country knows somebody who got foreclosed on and is scared to buy a house, which means expansion and no one's buying houses. That means rentals are probably going to do really well. So we said, all right, well, it sounds like a good time to get into apartments. Uh, so we found a mentor. And in 2011, we purchased and syndicated our first multifamily property. It was 92 units out in Macon, Georgia, on the other side of the country. And uh, since then, we've done about 2,700, and uh, we, that's all we do. We we are very big believers in in uh, becoming, you know, focusing on one thing and trying to become true experts in just one thing. Uh, and um, it's been a really good business so far, um, even in today's market. So 
All right. Okay. Uh, for starters, just to get a general sense out of nothing more than my own personal curiosity, what were some of the businesses that you guys started? And, and the proverbial <laughs> we is your, your wife and you? Yes, yes. Okay. She's my business partner. So we uh, we looked into the vending business. Uh, we actually tried flipping cars, buying cars at auction and fixing them up and selling those. We actually remember we spent a weekend just made a mess of our kitchen making like flavored popcorn, like, you know, trying to sell that, um, you know, stuff, you know, selling stuff online, uh, like T-shirts and designs and things like that. So, yeah, those those are the several that come to mind. So, you know, had we known each other and you would have told me about the flavored popcorn, I could have told you don't don't. um you know, just personally, I've always thought, oh my God, so nasty. But anyway, and then uh, who was the mentor or are you at liberty to say? Yeah. Um, I mean, his, uh, his name is Mike Ballard. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do mentoring anymore, but uh, he's the guy that we learned the business from. He had kind of you know, held our hand and guided us through that, especially through that first deal. Uh, and actually we are still business partners to this day, 12, 12 years later. I think we've done, I think we've done six deals together. Uh, the majority of our acquisitions have been actually with other partners, but uh, no, Mike is still a friend and a business partner uh, to this day. Got it. Now, I could infer when you say focus on one thing what that means, but I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'm going to make it a question. What does focus on? What is one thing you're focusing on? <laughs> Our one thing that we focus on is garden style, um, B minus to A class apartment complexes. Uh, between 80 and 250 units in the Southeast United States uh, that are value add. Okay. So describe B minus, right? Because it could be one man's C, it could be another man's B minus. So what yep. does that mean? And if you're asking your broker, it's usually a you know, class higher than, <laughs> than it actually is um, or a seller. And you bring up a good good point, Roger. A a class B in California could be a class A if you move that property to Georgia or you know vice versa. So, um, but generally speaking, you know there's A, B, C, and D. No one ever wants to admit to a D. Uh, but class A is generally your new, brand new, or very close to new stuff. Your best locations, your highest rent, all the fancy amenities. You know, it's the stuff that uh, they're, you know, they're targeting the, you know, the new college grads who just got a six-figure finance job or something like that, you know, are trying to move into those places. That's true class A. Class B tends to be kind of your middle. It's people who maybe can afford to buy a house, but just don't want to. Um, maybe it's the manager of, you know, not the cashier at McDonald's, but the manager of McDonald's. Um, and it, it's a pretty broad spectrum. Uh, it, it, it's kind of why we call it workforce. It really appeals to like the, the middle of, of the, you know, of the U.S. demographic. Class C, that's generally your renters for life. Uh, the people who are, you know, kind of your, your hardworking blue collar folks who might have two jobs to, you know, just to just to make ends meet. And a lot of times, you know, they're, they, they're again, they're, they're not going to be able to save up to buy a house. Uh, they, you know, a lot of them might not have a lot of cushion. If, you know, the car breaks down, they might have trouble making the, you know, that next month's rent. That's class C. And class D is if you visit the property, uh, you probably want to be packing heat. Um, so, <laughs> well. So what would vintage be? A B B minus R B. What what vintage are you talking about? Yeah, so that that that's another way of kind of describing it is when it was built. So yeah, class A tends to be very new. Class B these days, 
I would say ranges anywhere from 1985 to 2010. Uh, and, and, you know, that, that exact definition is going to depend on who you're talking to and what market you're in, but that's a rough, that, that's a rough guideline. Okay. And what does garden style mean? Ah, good point. So there's, and I'm not an architectural expert by any means, but garden style is generally uh, anywhere from one, typically two stories, sometimes three, and spread out in kind of like a, almost like it's a garden, right? If you think of uh, apartment complexes where you have, you know, large buildings and big grassy areas in between them and trees and, and all that. So it's only, you know, one to three stories and kind of spread out over a large parcel of land versus something, you know, maybe downtown that could be 20 stories tall or uh, podium style, which is like, you know, four plus stories. And it's, you know, there's a parking garage in the center. Garden style is uh, a little bit more spaced out, typically is in suburban environments. Yeah, typically in suburban. What do you like about garden style as opposed to, you know, a tower, 20 stories, 10, st- 10 stories podium, what's, what have you? Um, typically, you know, for part of it is, is candidly, that's just the expertise that we've developed over the last decade plus. Uh, the second is, is those towers tend to be in the central business districts, districts or, or more urbanized areas. And, um, you often have different sets of regulations there, but also they're often in order to make it, make the projects pencil out your, that's typically class A stuff, right? You're, you know, very high rents. Um, again, central business district. So it's just a different product. It's not, I'm, it's not at all about, not necessarily, I'm not saying at all it's a bad investment or necessarily something to avoid. It's just a different animal. Then they run a little bit differently than the suburban garden style. Um, you know, not to say we would never buy one, uh, but it's just generally not our, our product. Also, those tend to be owned by, you know, REITs and institutions and, you know, BlackRock and, you know, groups like that. So one, one of the guys, one of the first guys on my podcast, and it's because he's a friend of mine and somebody that I've invested with for a long time. And he, uh, he's got, you know, like 25,000 doors at this point. So he's a, he's big, 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 and very nice guy to boot. He's been doing it for 40 years. Okay. But he doesn't like the towers, which he calls, he doesn't like a lot of, uh, you know, the, the 10, 12, 15 stories because the systems are always breaking down. That, yeah, that you're, that you're exactly right. That it's a very different set of systems. So with garden style, each unit might have its own, has its own little air conditioner, right? And so if it breaks, well, you fix, either repair it or you replace it. With a tower, you probably have one system that cools the entire thing. Um, then you've got elevators. I mean, it's just, it's a very, very different physical asset. So got it. Uh, Andrew, how would you, I've never asked anybody this question. I, I don't know why this popped into my brain. I guess because you, you struck me went before we hit record is so smart because of some of the questions you asked me. No, usually nobody even asked me any questions, but <laughs> <laughs> which is fine. But, but I guess my question is, uh, you've been doing this, you, you've been, you've been since is, you know, so, you know, since 2011 multifamily, how, how would you differentiate yourself versus other sponsors? If you were describing it to some, a, a good friend of yours or whatever, over a beer. Uh, we are patient and disciplined. Uh, we don't chase the shiny objects. Um, we operate on the principle that no deal is no deal is better than a bad deal. 
So, you know, there was a period where we've gone uh, almost 18 months without doing a deal because we couldn't find something that we you know, were excited about putting in front of our investors and, and honestly saying, hey, this is this is a great investment. Um, so we are very disciplined in in our underwriting and, and being patient and, and to find the right thing. We also hedge risk really well. Um, so the last few years when everyone was going floating rate, we kind of looked at it and said, wait a second, guys, we are at the all time historic low for interest rates. So if you just look at statistics, odds are a few years from now, rates are going to be higher than the odds of them. Be, odds of rates being higher are much greater than the odds of them being lower, right? It's kind of tough to have rates below zero uh, for at least extended period of time. So we went ahead and fixed all of our loans the last five years. Which at the time, you know, everyone's like, oh, that's going to cost you money and all that. Well, we're pretty happy about it now. Our average debt service coverage ratio is 2.2 in our portfolio, meaning if you take our average property, the cash flow is two and a half times the mortgage and that mortgage is fixed. So it's not bouncing around with interest rates. Uh, and so we're in really good shape right now. Um, and, able, and able, with that cash flow, we are able to sit back and be patient. And we, we are trying to buy stuff now. And, but, you know, we're averaging for every one deal we buy, we're having to look at over 200 because it's so difficult to find stuff that actually works. Hmm. Here's the way it was explained to me. And I'm just going to ask because I know you'll know that you certainly have a, a point of view on it. Um is the way it was explained to me is that in the value add world mm -hmm. um, where there was going to be a necessity for a lot of cap X that, that, that sponsors couldn't get fixed rate debt as opposed to having to just, you know, uh, having to just accept a you know, lower yield. Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't just a function of, you know, engineering numbers for a better yield. It's that they couldn't even get fixed. Is there some semblance of, truth to what I'm saying or no? That's a partial truth. It depends on, and it depends on the type of asset that you're purchasing. So there's different kinds of value add. There's management value add where a property, yeah, it could be full. It could be doing just fine, but the current owner for whatever reason is just not maximizing the potential of the property They have, maybe they're not upgrading it. They're not pushing rents. They're not good at collections. They're not good at screening residents, whatever that might be. That's a, what we call a management play. And that's actually the the highest return on investment um, value add that generally you can find. The other kind is a physical value add where it's an, maybe it's an older property and it's got a lot of deferred maintenance. It's in bad shape. You need new roofs. You got to redo the flooring. The units are a mess. It needs all new appliances, air conditioning, you name it. Uh, and then there's just, there's, you know, just distressed asset, which is typically a combination of those two things. It usually has bad management and deferred maintenance. And so maybe it's, you know, 30% vacant and needs a lot of work. And so the, when people say, well, we can't get uh, fixed rate loans, they're talking about those assets there that won't, do not qualify for, for fixed rate loans under uh, Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. And so most people typically went to floating rate bridge in order to make those deals work out. Now, that's also a bit of a, a of a, you know, not quite accurate because just because you can't, you know, agency loans, 
which are the semi-government, you know, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, they're not the only thing that's fixed. You can get fixed rate bank loans and, and other type of loans. It's just that the floating rate were the most appealing because the, the that floating rate gave you a very low rate at that time. Um, so that's somewhat true in that if you're buying a 30% vacant 1965 property that needs a ton of work, the agencies aren't going to touch that. And kind of the, the standard model was to get a bridge loan, clean up the property and then refinance into Fannie and Freddie. Um, and if you were doing that, then the way to hedge your risk is to buy that rate cap, uh, which some operators did and, and some didn't. So um, the reason we were able to go almost all fixed, we have one that's floating rate, but we do have a rate cap. So it's capped out and the property still cash flows. Uh, the reason we were able to go fixed is because we, we did is we intentionally moved away from class C into class B, where even though there's still tremendous value add potential, the properties would also still qualify for agency fixed fixed rate debt. And you can get floating rate agency too. I mean, they they do floating rate also. But It's so interesting. You know, I look back a couple of years and I unfortunately deployed a fair amount of capital into handful of uh, floating rate. And um, the, I guess I guess it's easy to see looking back. It's easy to, to, to blame a sponsor, <laughs> yep. but I guess it's back then the common refrain was, yeah, interest rates might go up, but they won't go up very much. And you know, spoken from people that didn't know what they were talking about. But anyway, uh, hence, you know, looking back, it's everything is clear, but you, you well, know. I mean, and to be fair, I didn't think rates were going to be where they were at this point either. Uh, I remember looking at a forward rate curve two years ago, and it was you know this is basically the consensus of the Fed and experts and all, and it was predicting a fifty point basis rise over the next several years. And, you know, we're like, well, all right, so let's just to be safe, let's call it 100 basis points. And but here we are 500 something basis points higher in 18 months. Um, so we didn't predict it. However, what we did say is we said, well, that's what we put in, in the in the finance markets to call a long tail or left tail risk. Right. There is a significant risk that rates go far higher than any of us expense um, expect. And if, it, if they do, that could be disastrous. So let's hedge against that by fixing. All right. So we didn't, we didn't, we can't, I can't claim that we predicted this because we didn't, but we hedged against it. And fortunately that, you know, uh, played out as ended up being a, a good choice. So Got it. Well, you were proactive and you were smart. What roughly is your, is your head count in terms of, um, you know, in full-time employees that are, that are corporate, not attached to any of the properties? Yeah, we run a pretty lean and remote team. So there's obviously this myself, and then we have three other principals. And then in terms of operations, we have an acquisitions team that consists of two people, uh, asset management, uh, that is two people in addition to myself. We have an investor relations uh, manager, and then we have a full-time virtual assistant. That's our core team that, as you said, is not specifically attached to any one property. And then there's, you know, 30 to 40 people that are actually attached to the properties um, via yeah. our third party property management company. Yeah. I mean, as somebody that's a passive guy, that's that's appealing to me, which is kind of a sidebar, but because, you know, the, the guys that have, 50, you know, big and they want to keep growing and growing and they, if they have 50, 60 employees, they'll they'll say they're disciplined and I'm not saying they're not, but they but there's a beast to feed there. 
you know, where you guys are at scale, at a scale that's not, but you don't have a huge beast to feed. So you you could afford to be disciplined. Well, yeah, that's exactly right. And we, we were, that was also an intentional thing as we've grown the business. And part of why we haven't grown maybe quite as much as we could have is we wanted to always make sure that what we have supports who we have uh, without having to go out and do a deal. Now, obviously, if we didn't do any more deals for the next five years, then you know, uh, that's not going to be too exciting for the team, but, um, we're definitely, we, we very intentionally tried to set ourselves up so that we're never feeling an internal urgent need to go out and do something. We want to do a deal because we should not because we can. So got it. What describe to me in terms of if you're doing stuff in the Southeast, you're doing garden style B minus to, uh, I think you said B minus to A, I think you said. Yeah, right. A minus. B yeah. minus to A minus. Tell me that what the market is like. Uh, what are prices compared to a year ago? Uh, has, has any of the competition gone away? You know, what, what are acquisitions like right now? Uh, yes, a lot of the competition has gone away. Uh, a lot of them, unfortunately, are struggling to just hang on to what they have. Uh, plus, equity has gotten harder to raise for everybody, uh, us included. Uh, in terms of the market, transaction volume is probably only 25% of normal. Uh, it's very, very far down. And the reason for that is there's a huge spread between what sellers are asking and buyers are willing to offer. Uh, and I, you know, out of the properties we've offered on in the last three months, the average difference between what the seller wants and what we offer is about 15%. So if they want 10 million, we're probably offering eight or 8.5. And most sellers are just like, well, I'm not going to lower my price that much. I'm just going to hang on and wait. Uh, and so that's what's happening. We kind of have a, stale, have a stalemate. Uh, with that said, I think volume's going to pick up a lot next year for a variety of reasons. And in terms of pricing, I would call the peak in multifamily pricing to be January of 2022. And I would say we're down 15 to 25% from there, depending on the asset and the market that you're talking about. Some are, of course, down a lot more than others. And I, you know, as long as interest rates don't get much higher than they are today, my sense is pricing for apartments probably won't come down a whole lot more. But what we will see is we'll see a lot more properties actually trading down at the current discounted price level. Uh, so, you know, what that's going to, you know, so like I said, let's just say we're down 20% from 20, from January, 2022. Um, in 2024, you're probably going to see headlines of, oh, prices are down, you know, another 10% or whatever. Well, what that's actually going to be is just a, a lot more properties actually trading but just trading at today's where, where buyers are offering today as sellers can no longer afford to, you know, keep waiting and trying to wait things out. Okay. So every market's different. Every deal's different. But are you saying that, and, and, and I get that the, the vol, you know, trading volume's down 75%. Mm-hmm. Are the deals, are you suggesting that the deals that are trading now are 20% down from the peak of, let's say, January 2020? two or is it does it depend on i because I, I think maybe a class maybe not is down maybe not down so yeah, how does that I'd, look i'd say 15 to 25 percent down from january 2022 got it okay cool how do you deal with uh property management so we have uh, partnered with the same third-party property management company for about a decade actually probably i think a little more than a decade now and uh 
So they handle the day-to-day stuff like, you know, collecting rent from the lady in 306C and, you know, the lady and, you know, the dog in 301B, you know, bit the neighbor and all that kind of garbage. Uh, They handle all that. And then our job is to very closely, tightly asset manage, which means we have very close relationships with all of the on-site team members. Uh, with everybody in the property management company. And if you were to go to any one of our properties and as one of the, as an investor and be like, Hey, who do you work for? They're going to say, Oh, we work for Andrew and Kelly or, you know, or something like that, as opposed to the property management company. Um, Their relationship is probably closer with us. However, we don't have the systems, nor do we want to be involved in the day-to-day operations of thousands of units. That's uh a whole lot of admin, a whole lot of HR, and something that we would um, rather um, hire a third-party expert uh, to handle. So, so interesting. Wow. Uh, how how big of a company? Or I'll ask it this way: How many doors do those guys manage? Their company? Well, when we started with them, they managed three thousand. Uh, today, they manage about twenty-six thousand. Uh, all all in, in their region, all, all in the same region that we operate. So. Uh, their, you know, their expertise overlaps very, very, very well with ours. Got it. What's the name of them? Uh, Strategic Management Partners, SMP. Got it. Where are they out of? Atlanta. They're out of Atlanta. Okay. And I, and I went on your site. I could see that's where a lot of your, uh, in, in, in that vicinity is where a lot of the stuff you're doing. Very mm-hmm. interesting. So tell me what you think uh, you'd alluded to 2024. You're, you're anticipating deal flow to ramp up. It's not the term you used, but that was kind of what I got from it. Yeah. You said for a variety of reasons. So what are they? Well, we have a ton of loan maturities coming up uh, in 2024. And basically, a lot of those maturities are high uh, LTV, you know, high loan to value bridge loans that were taken out in 2021 and 2022, actually more like 2020 and 2021. And so a lot of those loans, when they originated, were at 75 or 80% of, you know, of the value of the property. Well, for with values down and interest rates way up, those loans cannot be refinanced. Um, you know, a lot of underwriting assumed to cash out refinance. Well, not only can you not do a cash out refinance on most of these, you have to put cash in. So, you know, if you got a, if you took out a $15 million loan, and you're going to refinance it next year. The 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 lender that's refinancing it, there's a you know reasonable chance they're going to come back and say, "We're well, we can only give you eleven or twelve, so you need to bring four million dollars to the table in order to refinance." So now the question becomes, well, do the sponsor or the investors in those properties have the ability to come up with that cash to be able to refinance? If they don't, then they're either going to have to sell or let it get foreclosed on. So that's that's going to be the the three options for quite a few properties in the coming two years, especially are cash in refinance, uh, which if it's a good asset in a good market, there's nothing wrong with that. All that means is you're just putting some more equity into it. And down the road, if that property is going to be worth more, you're going to get that equity back and hopefully with a return. So that's not necessarily... Uh, a horrible thing. Obviously, you know, every most people, myself included, prefer to not you know, have to put more in, but it, you're, it's not always throwing good money after bad. Um, now, if you're having to put a few million in just to cover interest payments and because occupancy is way down and, the, you know, the, the property's going downhill as well, that might be a different story. 
Um, so the situ- first situation is is people you know in the coming two years, some people are going to have to put a lot of money into refinance, or they're going to have to sell, or they're going to go back to the bank. And those last two means transactions and opportunities for those who are still able to buy uh, when we get to next year. So I'm in a situation where I'm in a couple deals where um, the business plans are not materializing, uh, the pro formas are not materializing for all the common reasons, uh, increased expenses. One is in uh, Austin, and so the insurance is gone Mm -hmm. way north in that case. Um, There's a couple in Memphis with varying, you know, things that aren't not materialized. And yet at the same time, appraisals have been very, very strong for these properties. And I guess I'm just wondering and very, very selfishly here. I'm wondering, you know, because I'm thinking they're going to have a hell of a time getting refinanced because they're in the identical situation that you described, but yet the properties have appraised so that their, their debt to value is maybe like 60 to 70% appraised value. So I guess I'm wondering, A, is how accurate the appraisals are. And I guess then it's when were they done would be the first question. Fairly mm-hmm. recent. But then I'm wondering with the buyer, the buying community, knowing that these respective sponsors are going to have their backs to the wall. I wonder if the appraised values go out the window and it turns into a fire sale. My hope is that to your earlier point, there's so much money waiting to be either that or either that or that was another podcast and I'm losing my mind. But I, I think that somebody said there's just so much money on the sidelines. Maybe that was my podcast yesterday. That I'm hoping there's enough competition to buy these assets that they'll be able to get close to their appraised value. Yeah, and, and that is, I mean, I do agree. There's a ton of money on the sidelines. And I oh, that's part of, we didn't discuss it, but that's part of my thesis as to why actual pricing probably won't go down a whole lot more. If inter- Because the biggest reason pricing is down is not because of performance. It's just because of interest rates. And buyers are like, well, hey, with interest rates at this high here, I can only offer you this. Um, and so, you know, as long as performance stays about, you know, as good or better, you know, than it is and interest rates don't go a ton higher then I think pricing is probably, you know, leveled out in overall. The issue is less with the appraisals and more with the debt service coverage ratio. That's what the lenders are really looking at. I mean, you can have a property where the loan's 10 million, the value's 20 million, but if the lender analyzes the cash flow and thinks that that cash flow is too thin to cover the the new mortgage, they they don't care what the value there is. They're going to say, "Sorry, you're eight, you know, we're only going to give you 8 million." That's the real constraint is not the value, it's the cash flow which they the lenders use to determine the debt service coverage ratio. And of course, in the debt service coverage ratio, all that means for, um, I don't want to just keep throwing out all these terms without defining them. It's the cash flow divided by the debt, right? So if your monthly mortgage payment is 100,000 and your monthly net operating income is 200,000, well, 200 divided by 100 is two. That means you can pay the mortgage two times over. But if you've got a property where the mortgage is 100,000 a month and the property produces 90,000 a month, that means your debt service coverage ratio is 0.9, which means you're not making enough money to cover the debt. And a lender's certainly not gonna refinance you into that kind of situation. They, t- they want you to be at like a 1.35 or 1.4. And that's the constraint that people are, or owners are coming up against. It's the, it's the debt coverage, not necessarily the valuation. 
So does that mean uh, that an acquirer, in order to hit the the debt service coverage ratio, would just have to put that much more money down? So they're borrowing that much less, but then their returns are, are just not worth acquiring the property. I mean, is it, is that kind of what comes down? Yeah. I mean, that's exactly what is, is that's exactly why transaction volume has slowed down so much is because, you know, if, if you're going to either the pricing has to come way down, which the sellers aren't yet willing to accept, or you have to put a whole lot more equity into it, which dilutes the yield. And at a certain point, it's just like, well, okay, this yield's not worth the risk. Uh, you know, if you're going to get a property and the yield's 5% and you can go buy a four-week treasury bill that gets five and a quarter, well, wait a second, you know, the, the, you, you get a, it just doesn't quite work out. So, yeah. Interesting. Well, interesting times ahead um, for, for, for sure. Have you, and you, you've been super, super smart and ahead of the curve, have any of your properties, you know, for execution reasons or for any other reasons, have you had to modify your distributions in the last six months or so, or are you pretty much, you, you know, kind of been in just steady Eddie? I think we currently have nine properties and only one of them has has had to uh, adjust distributions down. We actually increased distributions on a couple of them uh, earlier this year. Uh, and that is the, the one that has paused distributions is the one that, that we had to take. Uh, we were discussing about why some sponsors have to take floating rate loans. So the, there is only one property that we have a floating rate loan, a bridge loan on. We had to because uh, we, there was a building under construction and the f- fixed rate ones just did not make any sense. But we did buy a rate cap. Uh, so it is cash flowing. It pays the mortgage, no problem. And the property itself is performing well. However, because we have to refinance at the end of next year and we're not sure what the debt that the market's going to look like, we are just trying to build reserves up as much as possible in case there needs, in case there does need to be um, some funds put into the into the new loan. Ideally, it would be funds that we've already saved up. Got it. Are there? And it looks like you are, and this is just from a glance and what I'm recollecting. Uh, so obviously, feel free to correct me. But my recollection is most of your stuff seems to be in Georgia. Um, Georgia and Florida, yep. Georgia and Florida, but it seems like even more in Georgia than Florida. Is that correct or no? Uh, yeah, I'd say the, yeah, the majority is in, in, let's see, on a unit count basis. Yeah, I'd say about two thirds of it's in Georgia. Got it. And so do you have your eyes on other markets besides the two of, but apart from where you are, whether it be anywhere in Georgia that you're not currently in, anywhere in Florida that you're not currently in, and or other states that you're not in, whether it be, I don't know, what's the next state over Alabama or Louisiana or the Carolinas? Or what are you thinking about geographic footprint? Definitely not Louisiana, but uh, so yeah, we like North Florida, Georgia, the Carolinas, Eastern Tennessee, and a very few select submarkets in Alabama. Uh, it just so happens at the time we don't own assets in those other markets, but we're, we're very much looking in those markets. Are you ever tempted to delve into another asset class? Nope, definitely not. 
again, you know, kind of, you know, our decision is to try to become true experts in one thing. And that is, um, that's, you know, apartments. Uh, there's nothing wrong with self-storage and car washes and, and all these other things. They, I mean, industrial, I mean, a lot of those are great investments. Uh, we've just decided we're just going to stay focused on what we're good at. So, all right. Smart man. Um, what would you say is the biggest lesson you've learned or lessons? Uh, there's a lot. Relentless persistence. Uh, and that can, that can mean a lot of things, but you know, for, you know, and we, we talked about this before of in terms of, you know, I, I mentioned that we we're averaging having to look at 200 something deals in order to find one. Um, so relentlessly persisting and adhering to, you know, your standards and your underwriting and your goals and what you know makes a good deal and having the the discipline to, to do that. Um, and then also just, you know, when I, when I, when I started, I, we mentioned before, I started out flipping uh, and that, involved cold calling uh, people who were in foreclosure and I was not good on the phone. And so it took me 4,576 phone calls to get our first deal, <laughs> right? Six months. Uh, and that was, you know, nowadays everyone's got robocallers and rail call and all these automated stuff. I didn't have that. I was on a flip phone dialing each number by one at a time by hand. And, uh, but I knew that if I just executed, the system would work and eventually did. Um, so if it wasn't for that persistence, I wouldn't be here. Good man. Good man. All right. I love that. Yeah. I've made a couple call, couple cold calls my own self back in the day to the tune of thousands of them, but I didn't have to make thousands until I got my first deal, but I was in another business altogether. But here, here's the question. What did you learn from flipping houses? What, what's the, yeah, the biggest thing you learned from flipping houses that applies to multifamily? Scale. It's, you know, would you rather deal with a hundred houses or a hundred units all in one parcel, right? It is far easier to manage a hundred units in one that's in, let's say 10 buildings or 12 buildings on one parcel. Also, you know, I mentioned this at the beginning with an apartment complex, if you can, you, you know, a single family house is not designed for cash flow. It is designed to be someone's residence. Yes, you can buy it, turn it into a rental and probably, you know, hopefully if you did it right, make a couple hundred bucks a month. For most people, that's not going to be dramatically life changing. Uh, however, apartments are designed to be both housing and investment vehicles. And so they lend themselves to far better scalability and cash flow. And so not only do you get to provide housing, you get to create much better returns, um, especially long lasting returns. I mean, and don't get me wrong, we, you can make great profits flipping houses. But what I learned is, is if, if you're going to, one of the things you learned is if you're going to do that, uh, it, there's, again, it's, it's, you're only good as the last deal. There's no ongoing thing. Whereas if in, in apartments, you can kind of do a flip and that's what was very popular the last two or three years, right? You saw a lot of sponsors buy something, do a little bit of renovation and then sell it two or three years later. Um, that business model is on the shelf for the time being. But, uh, you know, with, with flipping, we learned, okay, we want to do something that's not quite so transactional, uh, that's more scalable. Um, of course, we learned some things about renovation and, you know, investor management and all that and flipping as well. 
Uh, but uh, we very, very much strongly prefer uh, multifamily for a whole lot of reasons. Is there a uh, favorite business book that you've read of late? Yeah, I'm actually in the process of rereading uh, Chris Voss's Never Split the Difference. Mm. And about negotiation? Yeah, yeah. He's a former FBI hostage negotiator and uh, it's uh, really, you know, First of all, very engaging and, and interesting book, especially some of the stories he tells. Um, but then also the the system that you know he works out and, and lays out is uh, extremely uh, effective. So. Got it, Andrew. You ready for an easy question? Sure, go for it. All right. How how does one get a hold of you? A hold of you if they want to find out more about you and what you're doing. Yeah, uh, probably the best is just go to uh, our website. So if you Google Vantage Point Acquisitions, uh, it's usually, the, I'm usually, or Andrew Cushman, I'm usually the top, you know, 10 plus results. But so the website is just uh, V like Vantage, P like Point, ACQ.com. And there's, you know, we've got some of the podcasts have been on on there and some other information, but then there's also a, a, a tab for how to contact us and you can complete that and and, and that'll come to, uh, that'll come to our inbox. And then um, I'm not a huge social media guy. Uh, you're not going to see me dancing on TikTok um, or trying to sell boot camps or anything, but I do post on LinkedIn and also try to comment and talk with others on there. So yeah, reach out and uh, connect with me on LinkedIn. So, Hey man, you and I are, 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 are one of the few that are not big social media guys. We're, we're going to have to hang. We're going to have to hang together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just not on social media. Right. <laughs> Exactly. This has been fantastic. And I hope to do this again with you uh, maybe in 2024 to see if your uh, prognostication uh, has materialized, which I suspect you're going to be right, especially if we wait to the latter part of the year and we'll see. So very, very much appreciated, Andrew. All right. Good talking to you, Roger. Take care. Talk to you soon. 